2: It's the second time it's gone on. They never got home. they never got home. they never got home, those those,
3: boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that,
2: can't you?
4: Yes.
3: Good right.
2: lad. So he's on almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever.
1: Uh, According to the official centenary programme, the biggest public history and cultural event that has ever been staged in this country is taking place all around us here in Dublin City Centre, Kent, with more than 500 free talks, exhibitions, a Kayleigh Moore, walking tours, debates, film performances and live dramatisations, 200 venues, 6 outdoor stages, 8 family zones, 50 tents, with lots of activities for children and families. But such is our dedication to you, our beloved listener, Myself and Ken are in here recording an Easter Monday edition of the Irish Times Second Cabin's Podcast. Mm. (laughs) Good to be indoors, again, away from all the cultural learnings that
2: we could be... (laughs) Cultural learnings of revolution (laughs) for make benefit of glorious nation. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I I don't know how we managed to tear ourselves away from the Easter uh, centenary memorial program. So fascinating. It is the uh, cavalcade of events hint
1: of sarcasm in your voice there I'm actually looking forward to getting out to it
2: Are you? Oh yeah What are you going wh- to Well through? I
1: said I didn't book ahead And then I was, I was just got, You know like a lot of people maybe Last night Oh I hear there are a lot of interesting talks going on Boom sold out Boom sold out Sold out Sold out Then uh, then there's, there were A few of the indoor talks were um, Not sold out But you have to call this number To see if there are still places available Sorry not that they're not sold out But that they uh, You can't book online anymore You couldn't book online yesterday mm-hmm. And then I was thinking, oh, call a number. Yeah. But I mean, it's like, I'll mean, i just watch another one of these documentaries in RT. I'll watch Joe Duffy talking about the children of the Rising or something. It, yeah, that'll keep me ticking. That'll keep the knowledge base ticking over. Yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of open. There's a lot of free open air events. You know, I might head up to O'Connell Street, Stephen's Green.
2: I did watch yesterday on TV. I was too tired to go out and face the crowd. Um, it's it, There was an interactive element when the aircraft and the various paths flew over my house a few right. seconds after appearing on TV. Uh, that was probably the part I enjoyed most.
1: I did get to see some of the parade uh, just around Lord Edward Street there at the top of Dame Street. Mm-hmm. It was a bit like the St. Patrick's Day parade without all the hammered by the Irish inflatable hammers.
2: Oh, yeah. where like, People were not wearing green? No, not
1: really. Not that much green. A, l- a little bit, but... Nothing like no. There was just it seemed a lot less drunk than the Patrick's Day festival. Certainly at that time of the day. Mm. Now it did awaken in the middle of the night with a lot of sirens around the area. I live in Christchurch, so I wouldn't say sirens are an alien sound late at night no. on, a, on, <laughs> on a big night for the country. But so I don't know how it developed. But certainly when I was at the parade early in the day, it seemed uh, yeah really good. A lot more just even though there were more people than there were in St Patrick's Day, it just seemed a bit more chilled or something yeah uh, just a bit, seemed a bit different and more unique I guess we have the Paddy's Day parade every year so it's kind of
2: yeah. just res- respectful I suppose and quietly respectful and dignified
1: <laughs> if you want to hear Ken's full thoughts on the 1916 Rising uh, go to our last podcast last week and if you missed that one we have got some very special on location podcasts coming up New York was his town and it always would be okay, it's away
5: and it's a deep- Jones on the run, this one has a chance, to run by
1: Piazza, and the Mets lead, 3-2. to Amadele in the red front
3: Joe Frazier
1: in the green front.
3: almost ready for the fight of
1: the It'll century. To read on the forecourt, right side from 20, jump yeah. Willis has hit on his first two. Behind the bag, it gets
2: through Buckner, here comes Knight, and the Mets
5: win it. I know we're going to win, I have that attitude, I feel that way, and it's not... Overconfidence thing is football stand. But easy onto it comes Houghton and Houghton with the shot, and it's there. Ray
3: what splendid sparkling opportunism for the old left peg this time. Remember Stuttgart '88. It's Ray Houghton once again.
1: It's Italy nil. It's Ireland one. This is incredible. Yes, but thanks to our. Good friends from Aer Lingus, from April the 11th, for a week, we're going to be doing our podcasts from New York City. There's a live show in the middle of all that, Wednesday, April 13th. It's a rooftop show, I believe our first ever rooftop podcast, Ken, unless you can remember a previous incarnation.
2: Mm, no, we I don't one, remember one.
1: We did once do a radio show in a bar in dream Yeah, I
2: was thinking of the shed in dream But that,
1: that had a jacuzzi in it. Was oh, the that's jacuzzi. Right. It was I think it was closed over by the time we got there. I think yeah. that bar had seen more lively days. So we were just we just reached the end of the Celtic Tiger, maybe by the time we, <laughs> we, we, So the Jacuzzi was nicely kind of uh, mossed over. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Anyway, this is a classy establishment, brass monkey in the Meat Packers in Manhattan. <laughs> uh, if you want to be there on Wednesday, April thirteenth, email new York at secondcaptains.com. You have to be over there. We're not we're not flying you over or anything, okay? Uh and we'll put your name in a draw for that. So New York at secondcaptains.com. Jerry Thorney is gonna make him to studio today as top of the table. Connacht eye up their first win at Ravenhill since 1960 after taking care of Lencer on Saturday night and Usher is going to discuss the allegations of eye-gouging against Dublin's James McCarthy. We're going to start with the horrible events at Wembley Arena on Saturday night. You may have seen some of this or at least read some of the story. Chris Eubank Jr. was challenging Nick Blackwell for his British middleweight title in what turned out to be an extremely one-sided fight. Eubank essentially just inflicted a serious beating on Blackwell for nine rounds and into the 10th round but the champion was certainly brave. He refused to quit. His corner didn't take him out. The ref, well the ref did stop the fight eventually but only after the ringside doctor decided that a cut above Blackwell's eye was too bad for him to fight on. The fighter since been placed in an induced coma after suffering a uh, bleed on the brain. So it was a really bad night for boxing. Like really bad and hopefully a watershed of, of some sort. It's, it, it was... A shocking sort of, uh, there's an argument that you shouldn't be shocked by anything you see in professional boxing, but it was hard not to be. This is a big show on terrestrial TV. A lot of people watching maybe in the UK anyway, who aren't necessarily boxing fans. And what they see is this uh, seething atmosphere, this sort of bloodthirsty atmosphere in the the stadium, this brutal gladiatorial event one man inflicting a massive beating on another. I've never seen so many uppercuts, so many clean uppercuts land in a fight. And it's just going on and on. Blackett not giving up, still throwing just enough punches apparently to convince the referee that he should be allowed to fight on. He also was knocked down uh, which if you're if you're really giving the referee the benefit of the doubt that that could be his argument. There, he wasn't knocked down. He wasn't really rocked in the in the classic sense of the words. He wasn't wasn't wobbly. He wasn't unsteady on his feet. But he was struggling badly. And it looked to me, by the time the doctor told him it was over, in in, in, in one of his last probably um, cogent moments before uh, what's happened to him since, he, he looked to be uh, just dying to get out of there.
2: Yeah. Well, I I found it very weird. I mean, I was watching. I, I watched the fight back. and I watched. I mean, in the sevens round. He gets such a hammering that I'm thinking, how is it, How is this not getting stopped at this stage? I really don't understand uh, why the referee hasn't stopped it. He he eventually does stop it, as you mentioned, for this, you know, an injury above, like on his left brow. It's mm. like his, you, you get one of these golf ball sized swellings on the brow. Apparently, you can stop a fight for that. That's enough for uh, medical grounds to stop a fight. Um, but just someone taking a an unmerciful beating. In itself isn't. Um, I thought that the corner, I thought that Blackwell's corner should have protected him better. Uh, it seemed to me um, when you could you could hear what was being said to him before the uh, the final round. Well, the, the tenth round was the was the round in which it was stopped, and what was said to him by his trainer uh, was, well, it was it was clear that the trainer was only thinking about the fight and wasn't thinking about his fighter. The trainer was talking about. He, he seemed pretty excited. He was given lots of advice. He was saying, this lad is, has uh, lost all the snap out of his punches. That's, you know, Eubank Jr. Uh, he essentially saying, Eubank Jr.'s tired. Now's, when, now's the time yeah, to put on the, the pressure. Plan. This was the plan. We knew he'd get tired. This yeah. was the plan. Isn't this what you've wanted all your life? You know, a man who, it struck me, was very much concentrating on the fight, the title, uh, everything around that, rather than, is my guy in shape to continue? He obviously believed that he was. That may have been an assessment that he made. Chris Eubank in the other corner, it was clear, had a different idea of what was happening in that fight. He he expressed amusement that it hadn't been stopped.
1: Yeah, he expressed amusement during the fight to Dur- To his own fighter, to his own son.
2: He I, said, "If in, if you know. keep if you keep uh, beating him like this, he's going to get hurt." You know, and I do why, why. is the referee not stopped? At, I don't know. Um, so you can see that clearly somebody who does have um, experience in Chris Eubank's case, very unfortunate experience yeah. um, of the fight against Michael Watson, who suffered uh, bad uh, injuries after, who suffered brain injuries after fighting Chris Eubank. He so didn't like, Eubank evidently didn't like what he was saying here. As for uh, Blackwell's trainer Lockett, he... He seemed to me to be too much wrapped up in what was happening in the fight. Now, I mean, the British Boxing Board of Control, um, their uh, spokesman is Robert Smith, uh, or the the General Secretary, rather, is Robert Smith. And I was really struck by the kind of bluntness of his comments. I mean, he said that he'd spoken to Blackwell's trainer, He was totally satisfied with his handling of the fight. Uh, But but what he says is every boxer who gets into a ring knows the risks. We have everything in place as best we can, but we're never going to make it 100% safe. Um, you know, it was just, it's kind of like, this happens, you know, this is the kind of stuff that happens in boxing.
1: But it's ridiculous that you can't continue to strive to make it even more safe. The Those tragic fights back then, Watson, the Jerry McClellan, Nigel Benn fight, at, at least one positive upshot of those fights was that there was, uh, there were, uh, neurologists on, on site for every fight, which I think may not have been the case before then. There were certainly massive safety improvements after a couple of serious uh, those serious incidents in the early 90s. So I don't understand how a fight like this can't shake people into thinking, okay, Grant, we have all the medical people on site there, but there's actually no medical people necessarily making the decisions in the middle of the fight as to whether or not these guys are okay to go on. And we're reliant, you know, a referee is largely reliant on on a guy getting knocked down repeatedly hmm. or a guy failing to throw any punches back, as opposed to being able to look at it. And I know we're, there's an element of being wise after the event, but if you watch the fight back, I mean, this guy is, in, in the classic boxing sense, he is still throwing punches, but there's nothing in those punches. And there's, there's, he's he is still defending himself. But not very well, you know, so uh, I don't know, there's a lot, there's a lot to get into here and we'll do it with Dr. Ana Falvey who's worked across a variety of sports. He was the Irish rugby team doctor until very recently, uh, is team doctor with the Irish Amateur Boxing Association High Performance Unit and he himself was uh, an Irish national super heavyweight boxing champion. Uh, Dr. Falvey, great to talk to you on the podcast. A really horrible outcome from this fight on Saturday. I suppose the, the first obvious question, do you think, was it avoidable?
3: Well, hindsight is twenty twenty vision and all you know in, in scenarios such as this and I think it, it's it's um it's it's very difficult to separate the, the business that is professional boxing from what happens in a situation such as this. So you have you while, well, while well, of course we talk about about boxing as a sport professional boxing like this um you know both boxers in there their their teams their coaches et cetera, all of whom are depending on this uh, for their livelihood and it it very much changes the the dynamic of what's happening in the sport because of that and i think it's very hard to to contextualize the whole situation without taking that into account so if you look at if you look at a situation where you have a boxer who's returning punches and doesn't appear to be even stepping backwards terribly, even though he's being clearly beaten, um, it, it, makes it, diff- it makes it more difficult to, to, to stop a fight. I mean, if you, if, you, to put, if you put things in another context, if you remember Andy Lee's uh, win over Matt Koroboff, he was under an awful lot of pressure prior to actually landing a, a, big, a big blow to, to, to knock out Koroboff. And if you looked at that in, in, con- in the context of, of the fight the other night, it's difficult to know which one you'd have actually stopped first.
1: I, I, yeah, I remember the Karabaugh fight very well. I don't remember Andy taking such a heavy beating, though. It did seem like Blackwell was... It's, a, it's it's interesting what you say there. But I guess typical boxing, professional boxing conventions, he was still throwing the odd shot back. He wasn't knocked down. He, he wasn't even... It wasn't even that he was stumbling very much he seemed to be maybe doing just enough by boxing conventions to to convince the ref that he was okay but surely there's are there other ways of measuring the danger a fighter might be in uh other than just the fact that he's able to throw the odd punch back
3: yeah and then that's 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 the that's the big problem here that that's the problem with a with a sport where essentially in a professional sport like this you're trying to impose yourself physically on the other boxer, and the, the the most the quickest way of doing that is to is to hit the, the the other boxer to the head and try and induce a concussion and and try and knock them out. So I mean that's the that's the the basis for professional boxing. And um, you know we know that we know that looking at the rise of MMA, you now, we know that there's an appetite for people who want to actually do the sport, and we know that people want to watch the sport or the business that it is. So. If you, if you just if you take that into account, of course there there are situations. If you look at if you look at what happens, say for example in amateur boxing, if one, if, if uh, one fighter uh, at one point in time in amateur boxing, if one fighter is ten points ahead of the other on the score, the fight is stopped because one boxer is clearly superior to the other. The fight is stopped and, and, it, and it avoids it avoids somebody being hurt. Um, if if the, if the other fighter is not making an effort to fight back against uh, their opponent, it's also stopped. If in the referee's if in the referee's mind that the the fighter is 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 for want of a better word um you know being hurt which which is a relative term compared to what's being going on in the fight then they'll stop it as well but it's 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 by degrees and it's it's one of those things where you know the the guy who's in there as who who's being beaten doesn't want to stop because he may still land a punch and he may still win so and i I'm, I'm i'm not defending the the fight being left to go on but you can understand sometimes why these things happen and it's it's a tragic terrible situation but it it doesn't change what you're dealing with which is a professional sport where people are being paid essentially to to hurt each other
1: Is it up to the corner in that case? Because it was interesting, a lot lot of people who mightn't even have seen the fight or or seen much of the fight might have seen the clips that have emerged since of Chris Eubanks Sr. in his son's corner advising him. He was saying, look, I don't know why the ref hasn't stopped this fight. He should have stopped the fight by now. I don't know what to tell you other than uh, you got to take him out because you could potentially hurt him here and, yeah. and ideally take him out to the body, which is amazing advice to hear. So if Chris Ewing Sr. could see that, yeah. how could uh, it the...
3: the it's probably the most telling thing, really, wasn't it? Yeah. So
1: how could the corner, how could Blackwell's corner n- not see the same from their own fighter that actually he couldn't win and all he was doing was getting badly hurt?
3: Yeah, and 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 you know you you don't know what's gone on before and between the cor the corner and uh, in between the coach and the boxer before and what agreement they've made. I mean, certainly any dealings I've had with, with with coaches in in situations such as that, they're always going to have the health of their boxer as, as their primary concern. But again. That's the the point I'm making. When we come to a professional thing, you don't. It's very difficult to know what people's motives are, where they're coming from, and it's it's difficult to defend it because there's money involved. So it it does cloud the decisions that are being made. And I mean, apparently the referee who is covering the fight is one of the one of the more experienced and better referees. But again, I mean, boxing is a unique situation where you have a non-medical person often making these types of calls. And they're based on they're based on the fact that that person has a good experience of knowing when a boxer's in trouble or not, and and stopping the fight as a result. But you know, we we all know cases where things where things aren't stopped I and mean, they should be.
1: Yeah, and in the case of the last fight Chris Eubank was involved in, Chris Eubank Sr., that fight was actually stopped. Pascal Collins was the trainer and he pulled Spike O'Sullivan out. This is in December. Yeah. Pascal Collins took a bit of criticism for that. But he yeah. his, his, his rationale at that stage was, look, my fighter had lost the snap in his own punches. He was taking punishment. I knew he couldn't win, but the boxing conventions that we talk about went against Pascal Collins in that in that context, yes. and it was almost seen like, well, why are you taking the fight why why are you taking that decision away from him? In retrospect, that's the responsible decisions, but maybe trainers don't take that often enough.
3: I couldn't agree more, and and, and you know, it's it, it's a bit like Chris Eubank calling that in the corner, like the, the boxing people who know their boxers know. When a guy isn't going isn't going to be in a position to do what he needs to do, and you know you 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 have to you applaud Patrick Collins for what he did in that situation, and he did take some slack about that at the time because you know there are people you know again people with vested interests wondering why the fight was stopped and why he wasn't allowed to to carry on, but he he's trying to look after his guy, and you know now, again the one thing the one thing that you do in all these situations is you never know unless you're unless you're actually there, you don't know what was going on in the background etc. But you have to you have to hope that you know where where a coach knows his boxer knows it's not going to happen that he make the correct decision and and pull the guy out.
1: The atmosphere and it looked uh, yeah, we're just watching on TV but it looked particularly bloodthirsty if that's the right phrase. It looked really intense. The crowd seemed quite close to the ring. There seemed to be a lot going on. Uh, you could even see Eubank interacting with uh, Tyson Fury and Billy Joe Saunders at ringside. There was there seem there seemed to be a lot going into. that. Can that sometimes transfer to the trainer and to the referee and maybe cloud their judgment uh, in in terms of allowing this sort of fight to go on?
3: They're human beings, aren't they? I mean, it's 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 it's, it's you know it's it's often a quite fetid atmosphere at these type of things. People. You know, I don't know if you you know having if you've gone to too many fights live, but it yeah. changes people, and, they, yeah. and they, they, it changes people, and everybody responds, and it's a, it's one of the more primal things that you'll see. You know, um, where you have a, a crowd, or you know, even even in something like in amateur boxing, you go to a local show, and there are people who, who see boxing once a year, and they go bonkers while it's on. Um, and it, it just changes people. So it's very hard not to be. It's, it's very hard not to be moved by the crowd. And that's why you know <clears throat> certain boxing venues, like the you know in in Ulster, you know the the venue there is, is the Ulster Hall is it, it, is particularly impressive for that very reason because it's right down on top of the ring. Everybody everybody's aware of it, and 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 it, it definitely changes what happens. That's why you know you have the phenomenon of hometown decisions in boxing. That, that's because the crowd has a has a big role in what happens.
1: Yeah and it's interesting the way you say that it actually changes a person because you do feel I I did get a sense now I watched the fight in full after hearing about what had happened but even with that I I, I felt there's a certain guilt that I'm a Boxing fan, you know, I've been to these fights. I remember uh, particularly Bernard Dunn, say, beating Ricardo Cordoba that time after being knocked down a few times. And I like, really, maybe I'm a bit hypocritical asking some of these questions uh, up in my ivory tower when I was screaming for Bernard Dunn to knock this guy out. I mean, that's, that's the way boxing is. But we, it, it, you know, I don't know, we're in 2016. We, we think we're getting a better understanding of concussion and own an interest, a uh, subject that's very close to your heart and uh, in sport in general. And yet boxing seems to stand alone as this. This this gruesome sort of spectacle does this feel like a watershed moment? I mean, are there any practical changes do you think that can be made uh, to?
3: But there, but there's a watershed moment every year. I mean, remember back to the, even when you talk about Patrick Collins. You remember Steve Collins that year when he was when he was fighting against Eubank Senior, and uh, and there was that Michael and Michael Watson was put into a almost that phenomenal fight, and we all watched that fight. It was one of the most unbelievable fights you've ever seen. Uh, Watson McKellen was incredible, and and you know that was a watershed moment as well. But there, there you know by definition, it, it's there's a, there's a saying, there's a saying that they use in law, which is that hard cases make bad law. Mm. And basically, the, the the phenomenon that is that is professional boxing that doesn't change the fact that every now and then there is a terrible tragic situation like this occurring. is very good because it sparks some debate, but the debate has to actually progress. So in in four days' time, when it moves on to the next story, everybody forgets about this again. And boxing just basically stays quiet and wait till it goes away, and then then moves on again. I, I wrote a, I wrote a, an article in the British Journal of Sports Medicine earlier on this year about amateur boxing, where they've just removed headgear from amateur boxing, and in the next Olympics in the Rio Olympics, there's now not going to be any headgear. And we had a we had a, one of our one of the Irish boxers um, fought a Polish boxer in 2014. And he'd fought this guy with headgear in two thousand and thirteen and um when he fought him in two thousand and fourteen without headgear and um, the guy landed the guy threw something like seventy punches missing 50, 56 of them and landing twenty one but he made twenty three head contacts with our with our boxer and our boxer had a headache afterwards, and a week later was diagnosed with a with a, a bleed on his brain from the amount of contact that he had had in the fight now. You, basically, I published that article because I think it's it's a it's a disgrace what's happening in amateur boxing. Uh, would you know, for me as a as a as a medical as a medical doctor who would be who I boxed myself and I would have I've looked after boxing for a long time until recently, and basically. The one thing I would have always said is you have to you have to differentiate the sport of amateur boxing from the from the business of professional boxing. And here we see amateur boxing chasing headlong into the business end of things by removing headgear and removing removing uh, some of the some of the protection that's there. You know, if you were to be cynical, uh, you'd say that perhaps they're trying to muscle their way into the professional market because they're now allowing professional boxers to box in the Olympics as well. And you know, the, the one area where there has been some sem- some semblance of control and care of an athlete in boxing is now actually changing unfortunately and, and, and that's probably an area that we need to look at.
1: Yeah, I just to take it back, I know it's, it's, it makes a lot of sense and I hadn't really thought about that side of it in terms of the amateur. I've That whole thing has confused me a bit in the last couple of years how the amateur yeah. game has seems to have just morphed into this strange yeah. form of yeah. professional boxing. I mean,
3: they, 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 yeah, sure the amateur, Aiba, as they're called, have put out a statement saying that they, 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 they did research to show that hey, you increased your chances of getting a concussion. They've never actually made that research published public. And, uh, you know, there's subsequently been work from from Australia, from Andrew McIntosh's group in in New South Wales, that have shown that, in fact, wearing a headgear limits the amount of contact and force through the head uh, from a punch. So they've actually got contrary evidence, and they've still pushed it through for the Olympics. It's difficult to fathom, to be honest.
1: Just to take it back, uh, finally, to what we saw uh, at the weekend, is is there anything practical that can be put in place to limit the chances of something like that happening again. Even, for example, you make the point there that the, the people making the decisions about whether the fight goes on or not aren't actually medically trained professionals. Yeah. Well, except in the case of the doctor. But, you know, he he's only brought in for cuts and yeah, it was interesting right. that it was a flesh wound. I mean, is there a possibility that you have an adjudicator, a medically trained adjudicator, Outside of the the doctor, somebody who's actually watching the fight on TV and and there witnessing what's happening and he might have a call that could supersede what the referee is saying, just so that you're not in a position where the ref is just looking for the really obvious telltale signs.
3: You, you, that 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 would be one model, and a, a way to make that a little a little less objective would be less subjective. Sorry, would be to perhaps introduce something like the, the amateur situation, where say for example that ten point rule was quite successful in limiting how boxers were hurt. So if you had a situation where you had three you had three successive rounds for a boxer was out had less than you know less than twenty five percent of the punches of of his opponent that might well be to say, look, this box, this fight is going in a direction that we don't want it to go. We're going to call it now. And if you, if that's agreed beforehand, nobody has a complaint about it. So what you're doing is if somebody's, divide, I think there are two issues. There's there's a big punch, which causes a lot of damage, or there's an overwhelming number of punches, which I think was probably the situation here. And that's some, certainly something over a couple of rounds that you could count and be aware of. So if you've got somebody who is being overwhelmed in a couple of rounds, then the fight is called. Um, because of that, rather than you know, uh, rather than just saying it being on somebody's gut feel, because the problem with that is that you know it, it's it's liable to being persuaded by both the crowd and you know you know no, perhaps knowing the boxer or fe- ha- having a feeling for them, etc. If there is an actual subjective number that you can, sorry, an objective number that you can that you can use, that may be of help.
1: Yeah. Okay. There's lots to think about. Like you're saying, hopefully the debate doesn't just die away after um, after a few days, as yeah. often is the case. Doctor Aina Falvi appreciate you taking the call on a bank holiday. Thanks so much. Thanks
3: a minute. Bye.
1: Yeah, it's a really, just a really good common sense suggestion from Aina Falby. There, a ten point rule equivalent, three successive rounds, it, w- with one fighter fighting, for example, less than twenty five percent, throwing less than twenty five percent punches of his opponent, and it's agreed in advance that. Something like that signals the end of the fight. Now that's not wouldn't be an easy uh, sale, I don't think, in professional boxing. But he's suggesting something. This is the point I was making earlier on that you you were saying, again, that the BBC were were, um, you know, we're saying, well, look, this is just the way it is. That the the, the every fighter has to accept that these are ri- that there are risks, but that there's got to be more done. I think to, I don't know, unless you just say, look, I mean, it's professional boxing. Throw your hat at it like these guys, these guys sign up for it, therefore they deserve what they get. I don't think that's really very fair. Though.
2: Well, it's basically an unsafe concept. Um, you know, guys hit each other in the head until one of them can't continue. You know, it's not like, um, it's not safe. Uh, you could, I mean, one thing, for instance, uh, obviously, what the difference in mixed martial arts is that you stop, there's no counts, you know, if you stop defending yourself, that's the end, that's the end of the fight. So if you got rid of the counts, the counts are what enables a guy to get up off the floor, having taken a concussion, and you know, collect himself and continue. If you got rid of that,
1: so just a knockdown is a knockout? Is that what you are saying?
2: Well, a, no- a knockdown. If you can't, if guy. you if you can't get back up, if you can't, if if you know, if you're if you're in that situation, I mean, pff, you know, that would make a lot of fights a lot shorter. It would mean a lot of boxers would get would absorb a lot less damage. Uh, in in the fights, it would, I imagine, not be popular among boxers.
1: <laughs> no, I'm, I'm trying to imagine selling that to the boxing. But this is my point. Yeah, the, you got to make these suggestions, and qualified people have to make them too.
2: That is the argument that fans of uh, MMA would make, is to say why their sport, despite its appearance, is safer than boxing because you don't, there isn't the chance for. The fighters who absorb the same amount of repeated punishment over a long period of time, they don't get the chance to sort of take a little break and uh, you know gather their energies in account. You know, if they're knocked down, that's pretty much. If if they're if they're stunned, that's pretty much the end of the fight.
1: the uh, Simon, were you impressed by uh, just to, yeah. to come
6: in on that because Neil Francis wrote a good article at the weekend in the Sunday Indo about how Lily liver the world rugby are in regards to concussion in rugby. And just talked about, let's try some things. You know, they trial things all around the world in in underage competitions or in regional competitions, whether it's six points for a try or, you know, to change the flow of the game. He he suggested trying things such as uh, two men aren't allowed to tackle the one attacker. Um, You know, there was a 10-point plan there as well. And it seems as if they don't even try things. It's more about, you know... um, Testing for concussion and, and seeing how badly damaged players are, and using medical evidence as opposed to trialing laws yeah. in the game to prevent it happening at all.
1: All right, Jerry Thorny's in the studio. Jerry, thanks for popping in on an Easter Monday. How are you? Very good, thank you. Uh, the atmosphere at the sports grounds is something that you discussed, I think it was uh, one of the podcasts I was away for on holidays a couple of weeks ago, about this being one of the best things, probably about Irish sport at the moment, this, the, the, what they're building there mm-hmm. in Galway. I'd imagine it was a pretty good one on Saturday night
5: don't know if I've ever heard a roar quite like the one that greeted um, Caelan Blade uh, kicking the ball dead uh, yeah. with 80 minutes up. I don't know if I've ever heard a roar quite like it in the sports ground because I'm sure at 7-0 up at half-time and then when it became 7-3 early in the second half, the Connick feared the worst. But just the uh, the sheer bravery. The bravery comes in many formats in sport and it's it's sure it's very brave to continue to put your body on the line and make tackles and rubbing defence, such a slim lead. But it was also the manner they did it, just by... Keeping the ball and varying the points of attack, and going through twenty phases at one point in the wind, just refusing to kick, which um, uh, was in stark contrast to Leinster, who didn't play with as much variety or width and had kicked the ball a couple of times in the first half into that wind, which led to the game's only try. So both kicking Leinster's kicking policy or use of the ball, and then Connacht's superior use of the ball were contributing factors in the only try of the game. And for that reason, it was a very memorable, deserved win for them.
6: I thought the most startling thing was as you say, changing the point of contact, the difference between the two sides, it was so evident the philosophy of Mm. the two coaches was radically different. Leinster, I think, felt they were a bigger, more powerful side Mm. and that they could bludgeon their way through. Um, And Connacht just, their belief in their skills, in the toughest of conditions, in the tightest of games, against a team they really want to beat at home in front of this record crowd, which brings its own pressure because when you're trying to build things, there's new visitors, there's new people seeing the game for the Mm. first time. All these added pressures. They're top of the table. They're, they're playing the team or in second place and they still stick to their philosophy. That was the most impressive thing and and again, it just showed the difference between the two sides. Yeah,
5: it was quite striking the difference. Um, you, We've cut Leinster a little bit of slack on two counts. Number one, they were welcoming back an awful lot of players from the Six Nations. Um, they they're much greater bulk of players still despite Connacht's record breaking five in the game against Italy and still so welcomed back an awful lot of players to the starting team and to the bench. So they weren't going to be perhaps as cohesive as Connacht. Um, And they had beaten them in the earlier meeting this season at the RDS. And we are only in the first season of the Leo Cullen reign with Gervin Dempsey and the rest of the coaching staff there. If memory serves, in the first year of Pat Lamb's reign after they won their opening match at home to Zebra, they then lost their next eight league matches in a row. Rome wasn't built in a day. And so for the last two and a half seasons, I was lucky enough to go be down there last Tuesday and watch some of the training session. And it's, it's the intensity of a match and it's utterly fluid in the way that players step in at any given position. It's very much a, a Canterbury stroke, Auckland stroke, New Zealand brand of rugby. Um, You had Caelan Blade stepping in out half for the first time in his life for 10 minutes during the second half. And one of the players after, I think it was Dennis Buckley, said oh, "Oh, he's never played there before. But and he, well, Then again, but he probably has stepped in and training because we all step in as first receiver training. So it's just this very fluid interchangeable. And I thought that was the other thing as well, when the for the try from the miscued um, up and under into the win by Luke McGrath, Peter Robb feeds Tiernan O'Halloran. O'Halloran has interviewed during the week and he says they have license to counter-attack from anywhere in the pitch at all times. He's loving it. He's an ever present First chance bit. he got. First chance he got. Away he went. And that was, the, that was the way it went. And then for the try as well, he made an offload in the tackle to uh, AJ McGinty who nearly got beheaded by Easton Nasewa and the crowd are howling. And they went two phases wide left, two phases wide right, um, and Freed, um, the winner on the outside, whose name I'm not going to try and pronounce. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you going to do it? Adi Loko? Well done, well done. Adi Loco, and the Wayne. And he, that, that led to the try. And at no point in the 80 minutes did Leinster even attempt that kind of brand of rugby. So that was, that was why I think, yeah, you're right. Like I said, bravery comes in many formats and was a bravery to back their skill set in that way. And it's just in, in that move, going, I remember going right to left, there were three Forwards at the end of it, and they were just interlinking seamlessly with backs and i don 't know if there 's a group of forwards in the uh, pro twelve at the moment who are demonstrating such a variety of ball handling skill sets as Connor are and this obviously took time and goes back to those training sessions I talked about they are qu- they 're quite intense the training sessions, and every day they say, right, how could we have trained better than that and everybody everybodys into the philosophy and um, it's just it, it's very high energy it's very loud there's a lot of calling there's a lot of screams, a lot of communication and a lot of demands from the coaches and it's just very um, impressive stuff and they're buying into it because it's reaping the rewards Yeah and
1: some of the phrases you use there uh, license to counter attack varying the points of attack mm. this is exactly what we uh, what rugby in this part of the world is crying out for it's yeah. the constant conversation we've been having for the last <laughs> however long but uh, you had a good quote from Pat Lam after he says the boys know that I cannot stand running straight, straight into, into people, people. Yeah. yeah. since they know I've prepped us to have options there I wasn't a big back rower myself and the last thing I did was run straight into somebody again it seems very basic the idea that you don't run into anybody but I mean the vast majority of coaches in Europe seem maybe that's a sweeping generalisation certainly a lot of coaches in Europe seem happy for that to be the case Pat Lamb obviously thinks differently about it
5: Yeah he does Yeah, and it's his philosophy it's, it's funny how when he first arrived he, there was a lot of complaints about the appointment. Remember, there was quite a campaign to get Eddie O'Sullivan and his coach at the time. A lot of people were very much against the Pat Lam appointment yeah, in the rugby fraternity. Yeah, I don't remember it being
1: universally welcome. No, it like, wasn't yeah. hailed
5: at all. I'm, his record wasn't great. No, but in one particular year at Auckland Blues, it wasn't great. And I remember interviewing him right at the start, getting an interview with him over the phone. As soon as he'd been appointed and he was explaining they, were, they had their injury toll, the missed kicks at goal and they had the smallest coaching staff of any team in Super Rugby. There were a myriad of factors at work. You know, one bad season does not make a bad coach. Um, and also, coaches, like everything, we all learn more from our defeats and our wins, and he probably learned more from that season. In any event, I think what you, it does show is you need time to develop these skills and, and this culture that he's created. It's, it's an, he's created really quite something special. He's got a great building blocks left in place by Michael Bradley, and particularly Eric Elwood. And the, as I said in this show before, cannot have... Their budget has been increased by the RFU from something like four to six million. So for the first time in history, they've been really backed by the RFU. That's worth noting as well. He came in at a good time. There's a fantastic crop of players coming through from the academy and Nigel Carroll and work there. Um, But all that being said, he's created a culture of winning. He's created a culture uh, of professionalism and of a brand of rugby that you're right. It's very exciting to watch. This is Conant. Traditionally, the lowest try scores in the Pro 12, who relied on brute force and their lineout maul and their set piece game and their physicality to survive with the big guns. Now they're doing it by outwitting them. By that was Marmion's try was their 50th try in the Pro 12 this season. They're the leading try scorers in the league. Connaught are the entertainers. It's quite a transformation. There's been no story like it, in I would say, in Northern Hemisphere club stroke professional rugby in the professional era, quite like it so far.
6: Well, would you think of how low their base was? finishing top, uh, bottom of the table for a few seasons in a row, normally in the bottom two, Um, and just the lack of culture, lack of history, Mm. lack of a school's game, lack of Mm. real strong clubs. I know there's two or three strong clubs, but compared to the other three provinces. um, But they play also in the windiest, wettest city in European rugby, I think, of any club or province. And so when Pat Lam came in with this philosophy for them to be this skillful team that were constantly going to keep the ball in hand, you wondered it in their home games with that backfire. And then when the rain came in against Leinster and it was deemed to be more of an advantage to Leinster, a bigger team who didn't mm. throw the ball around as much. But actually, skills probably count even more in that sort of weather. If you can maintain it, if you can stick to your philosophy, they ultimately got the try out of skills and offloads mm. Yeah, and backing themselves.
5: Yeah, true. Well, then you think about it, they're training in that weather every day. On the pitch right beside, you know what mm. I mean? The back pitch there, it's <clears throat> it's a 15-yard walk from the exit from one pitch to the other. So they know the conditions pretty well down there. They know them better than anybody. And they, if you back yourself every day in training, to, to execute those skills for two and a half years, They're, by season three, I suppose, as we've seen, they are more likely to um, reap fruition, and you can you can replicate them in that kind of climate, in those kind of conditions. So it gives the lie to the notion that you know, in wet weather, you have to kick the leather off the ball. They proved otherwise. They, I think, they kicked the ball with the wind in the first half, maybe five times, twice actually as an attacking gambit, three or four times from turnovers and just clearing their decks to use it. Um, <clears throat> so. It was, it was driving even their own supporters mad there was lots of shouts of kick it, kick it and they just ignored and went on playing this Yeah, it did, rugby. it did strike me <laughs> I, I,
1: you were just but whether whatever about against the wind I know there's a lot even when they had the wind mm. uh, they didn't <clears throat> seem they seemed pretty nope. reluctant to kick the ball yeah. you know when, yeah. it, when it seemed like there had to be the odd percentage play there where you just yeah. nudge it down the line and
5: ultimately they got a cracking good try out of it by backing themselves. When the weather was, I mean, it was quite an extraordinary day and evening. There were rainbows, sunshine, snowstorms, mm-hmm. hailstones, everything mm-hmm. there was. And they backed themselves. And Leinster didn't to the same extent. And with the win for forty minutes, never really looked like scoring a try. Well, it, it, the other thing is it kills the <clears throat> clock if you can hold on to the yeah. ball. I mean, now Leinster did I that think... well in the first half too. You know, there was a, mm-hmm. if you look at the possession stats, they had about sixty-three percent possession the first half. They did subdue the crowd in the second quarter, Leinster, by play, doing something similar. But it was more running down the clock as opposed to really exploring gaps. Or are playing with the same amount of width. I think there's a natural instinct amongst supporters and
6: probably players that when you're under pressure in your own 22, kicking it long is the best option. But the way it works these days, how good fullbacks are, how good back threes are, combine and bring the ball back. Or even if you're kicking it to touch, it's a line-out that's almost always won by the team that's doing the throw-in. And the pressure straight back on you. And all you've (laughs) actually killed is 10 seconds and gained, whatever, 20, 30 yards. Um, Whereas if you go through 20 phases, you kill the clock, um, you have a decent set piece, then you know you're sort of taking things more in control in your own hands. And if you're doing that game after game, you get better and better at it.
5: Yeah, <clears throat> and they backed themselves even at seven three. They didn't, they didn't in any way waver from this when it looked it looked it was going to be a really long thirty eight minutes for the Ian Madigan's first penalty. Now, and I think as well they asked more questions of the Leinster defence. Um, you'd have to say Nigel Owens refereeing was very conducive to recycling the ball, as it often is. There were only nine full penalties in the match. Very few players were penalised for going off their feet, yet there seemed to be a fair degree of it. Um, It was a classic Nigel Owens kind of game. It was very fluid. He handled the game very sympathetically. Um, I'm not sure it would have been quite the same game if there'd been one of the more typically fastidious Pro 12 referees around, and there are plenty of them. Um, That could have been a different match. You know, the referees are very influential.
1: The uh, Leinster performance, you said you're willing to give them uh, maybe a little mm-hmm. bit of leeway based on uh, the just getting the Six Nations players back in. Mm-hmm. But the, something about the performance looked a little bit stodgy or something they looked almost it's as flat. though yeah flat and mm. they, they, they looked like a big team maybe just mm. kind of a few small players mm. out there they looked like the, a big bludgeoning almost like the spring box at their, at their most bludgeoning where they kind of thought like
6: they used Ben Te'o and Keane Healy and these types of players to, to run straight
5: at people Reece exactly what we were talking about Dominic Ryan they were the main carriers and weren't they weren't they?
1: gaining any ground really
6: they might gain half a yard but mm. nothing significant
5: yeah there was a lot of times when Connors weren't gaining a whole lot of ground either you know what I mean there was one that 20 phase um, you couldn't even call it attack. Why wouldn't we have got a 20-phase retention of the ball and deep in their own half and second half? I don't remember, don't think they gained too many metres out of that either. Um, and, you know, sometimes you do have to go straight into contact and you have to take the contact. Um, what what I like about the connaught players, by comparison to the Leinster players, is when their they're on the ball, you're right. They don't go straight into contact. At the last second, they try and vary their footwork a little bit. They're they're looking for offloads, and then they might change their mind. They will go into contact, but they look comfortable. They look a little bit more comfortable in the ball, perhaps just because they're used to it. And they're just coached that way and they're more practised in that way. But I, like I said, we'll give Colin and Dempsey time and cut them some slack. They're still in a very good position in the league. Leinster, they've got a, a reasonably good... If they beat Munster at home, which is going to be a cracking game the Aviva next Saturday because there were signs of a little bit of a recovery again in Munster's play at the weekend. They scored some cracking tries, albeit against Zebra. That would be a very interesting game to see how Leinster approached that one. You would imagine with Johnny Sexton back they'll be a completely different team because he's such a good running out half and he comes off the Six Nations in such good form. So we can jump to too many conclusions based on one game is what I'm saying. Leinster could still finish top of that Pro 12 and I still wouldn't. I would still back Leinster as the most likely team in that league to get a home semi-final.
1: Well, Connacht travel to Ravenhill next weekend. Mm. Uh, They haven't won there since 1960, I think you were saying this morning. Um, But they're full of confidence.
5: I don't think they'll they'll be too concerned about any of those historical issues. It's an interesting one you mentioned because... Um, they would always have been saddled by their own history in the past, going to places they've never won and lacking that real belief to do it. In the transformation of Connacht under Pat Lam, it is now they embrace history and they embrace challenges as a chance to make their own history. So it is, they go down to the, the Liberty Stadium and win there for the first time this season. So they go to Thoman Park and win there. When was it, Simon? First time since the 60s, wasn't it? Late 60s. They go to Thoman Park and they win. Um great, Ulster way, let's go and win there let's make history, that's their attitude now nothing fazes them anymore if they do it, they do it, if they don't, they don't but it's an, a challenge to be embraced and to be taken on you would imagine, it's the one team I think Pat Lam said that kind of never beaten in his watch um, with that record, with the six day turnaround with Ulster coming off um a defeat which must hurt with Ulster now fighting for their lives. But this is the great thing about this six-game run and most of the teams they've played, as Pat Lama said, they've come up against opponents who are desperate for wins as well. This is this is the, the business end of the season where every win is vital. And as, as it stands, with the buffer they have now over seventh place, despite Edinburgh winning yesterday, that win in Edinburgh a couple of weeks back has, I think, virtually sealed them a place in their main target of winning, of getting into the Champions Cup. The problem now for Connor is... They've really increased their own expectations levels and boy have they increased the expectation levels of their fans. They just can't stop talking about a semi-final. (laughs) A home semi-final in one or other competition and this is the additional problem for them. In the midst of this run of three derbies they've got Grenoble away. If they win that they get a home semi-final against most probably Harlequins, Conor Shea at all. And if they get a course in the top two, they get a home semi-final in the Pro 12. I think at the very least, if they don't get at least one semi-final in one of the competitions, even if it's an away semi-final in the Pro 12, it would almost be anticlimactic for them now.
6: Yeah. Well, one thing we didn't touch on there is they've had no luck this season with injuries either. AJ McGinty's their third choice out half, yeah, and he's gone now what, as well. What are they actually going to do? I mean, they're at a situation now where do, do they manage the, the the two problems or the two competitions? Do they? rest players against Grenoble?
5: I don't think so. <clears throat> um, t- listening to Pat Lamb being down there a couple of times recently <clears throat> it seems as if the Challenge C- the Challenge Cup is arguably the more winnable trophy for them if you think about it. They've only three more games to win in that. For- to win the Pro 12 they probably have to win at least three of their last four in the run-in and then a semi-final and a final. Um, <clears throat> and of course imagine what winning a trophy would do for Connacht. Just to, to winning a trophy, I don't know they've ever won a trophy before, no. Like a major trophy, it would be a huge boon for them. So I don't think they can ignore that and just feel um, <clears throat> an academy side and just take take the the head in the chin and, and go out of the Challenge Cup and refocus their energies in the Pro 12. I think they have to go for it. So it is a challenge for them and their, but their squad. Imagine I,
6: imagine one of the other provinces down to their fourth choice out half. Yeah. you would fully expect them to lose the next game. Yep, you
5: would, you would, and yet it has <clears throat> been a real feature up in this season, and you watch them in training. It's it's quite a numerous training session. Every single member of the academy, as well as the senior squad, is involved. And that is why there's been such a seamless transition, like Peter Robb making his full debut at the weekend against Benteo and Gary Ringos. And he wasn't phased, and he was very effective. He actually had a decent game. And, of course, yep. Bondiaki outside him was utterly sensational, as he ever is. So... <clears throat> They'll find a way around it. It it has. They've never had an excuse culture when it comes to injury. That's for sure. And they're not going to start now. They'll they'll find a way. And they have now utter faith in the entire squad. And another feature about that game as well. Owen McKeown made twenty three tackles, something like nine carries for forty nine meters. He was unquestionably the man of the match. He wasn't meant to be in the team except for Jake Heenan pulling out the day before. And I think that shows the level of hunger now just to get into a match day squad down there as well. They're, I'd say they're beating down Lamb's door. Why didn't you pick me this week? He said there were a lot of disappointed players and he made a point of praising the rest of the squad and making that match day 23 so um, honed from training during the week. So they'll be um, they'll be banging down his door to get into the team again next week.
1: Jerry, we've kept in here long enough. The biggest public history and cultural event that has ever been staged in this country is taking place uh, all around us. So
4: mm. we'll let you go out and
5: enjoy <laughs> some of it. Cheers. Thanks very much. What, you, what are you saying?
3: You just a phony man, this is just for acting. I admit I don't look like the athlete of the day. Supposed to look.
5: This ain't wrestling. This
3: ain't the WWE, baby. My belly's just a little big. My
5: heart is just a little big. This is just an act that you're doing. You should be an actor. But brother, I am bad and they know I'm bad.
4: I'll never do that there
5: were two bad people. One was drying a lane and he's scared, brother, and the other one ready out. You've you could run around like you're a preacher and all that you want, but baby, I promise you I will baptize you. I
2: don't
1: wanna be building up the conduct victory too much, Simon, but is it an era-defining win, potentially, the one they got against Lancer? Is it, is it any more or less impactful than beating Munster earlier on? Or do they have to actually go away to Ravenhill? Uh, I mean, if they go and win in Ravenhill, we're talking about a team that could easily win the league.
6: Well, then they have, I almost definitely have a home semi-final. And at home, you kind of fancy them to win or beat any other team in the league. But the final 15, 20 minutes of that game when they are under the cosh and uh, scrums on their own line and massive wind in their faces you kind of felt as if Connacht were grappling with their whole history here of you know, showing promise but ultimately failing on the biggest occasion. And this wasn't the biggest, most important occasion, but it was beating a Leinster team who were also um, desperate to win that game. It was sort of backing up the form all season and backing up their form while the other big players were at the Six Nations. And Leinster ultimately picked almost their strongest team. Certainly by the end of the game, that was as good as uh, a team as Leinster can pick at the moment. I mean the evidence will be if they. I think if they make uh, a home playoff they don't have to win the league this year given I think their high, previous highest position was 6th or 7th something like that but uh, it felt very important I mean the Munster game was earlier in the season it wasn't so crucial whereas this is really you know the next couple of wins and the whole thing like they get reward for all their great work and all their progress
1: The Irish Times Second Cup's Football Podcast is ready for you to enjoy
0: That's... Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well
3: yeah, you can laugh. I need to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You
5: don't know what you're talking about. What did yeah. you know I'd like to stay alive for oh, oh, six I'd say it
4: to you, but I'll say it to what you now. i Come down field, and we'll see them What you doing down here, yes, you showing me man. <laughs>
2: Well and we talked to Emmett Malone about the situation, the the sort of the choices uh, that are facing Martin O'Neill and how those are becoming a little bit more clear over these friendly weekends. We talked about some other things as well. Uh Rural Britannia and Berlin.
1: <laughs> Last year is all iron final. You might remember Philly McMahon appearing to gouge the eye of Kieran Donah. He accepted a one match ban. McMahon accepted a one match ban eventually after that one. Um Sean interesting, I was reading it up on it today based on the incident we're about to chat about now, but uh, there's Sean Moore's wrote at the time. There's no specific infraction of gouging in Gaelic games. That incident, the McMahon incident, was dealt with under Category Three infraction, and the rule was to behave in any way which is dangerous to an opponent. So it might be, I don't know, worth bearing that in mind that there's no specific uh, r- a rule about this particular type of foul play. This, um, but on Saturday night, anyway, James McCarthy uh, appeared to. At the, at the least Stick the thumb in the eye Of Donegal's Martin McElhenney And Oisín McConville Is ready to talk A little bit about this We appreciate you Taking a call On a bank holiday Usheen Appreciate it so much That I'm going to ask you What you made of the James McCarthy incident To start
4: oh, Straight in with a tough one on. Um, At at the time I didn't think Much of it and, and I suppose You know When you slow it down And you actually see The incident it, Like there's no doubt that it, that it doesn't look great But Genuinely think um, it wasn't a gauge um, I think it was just the. I think he put his hand he put his hand when he put his hand in his face and he started to squeeze it or whatever um, It you know it comes close to the A area but I genuinely think at the time that uh, that wasn't the you know that wasn't the intention and what
1: uh, what, what is he doing with his thumb there though? I mean he does he, he whatever you call it he does get his thumb yeah in, in, into the eye you know yeah it,
4: doesn't it definitely doesn't look great you know as I say when you slow it down but uh, if you watch it at normal speed it's just I think it was just a matter of getting his you know uh, the two of them were sort of wrestling and just to get uh, you know the or whoever it was away from him and uh, it does it there's no doubt that it doesn't look good but I genuinely don't think that it was an actual gouge like I've seen worse incidents like the Philly McMahon incident in the All Ireland final you know was definitely worse than on that particular incident, but well, that doesn't make it. That doesn't make it right. Um, that doesn't make it right. So, when you,
1: so when you say it wasn't a gouge, was it? Was it reckless enough, or was it? Uh, is it? Was it serious enough that you would call it foul play? That you would ban the player for that?
4: Well, the, the, I suppose the one thing that we need to realise is the referee has dealt with it now, and so for the for the there to be any punishment the referee will have to mention that in his in his uh in his notes. He give him another yellow card, and A gauge will be a, a straight red so I think I think we've heard the last of it, you know, to be honest. And um I mean McCarthy I suppose will be will be lucky in that respect if there's nothing in the referee's report but if you if you remember the referee has a couple of days to get that report together and send it in So they probably won't receive it till Tuesday. So we probably won't know till maybe Tuesday night or Wednesday. Um, But, like you know, what he puts in in the meantime when he has a look back at it is is completely up to himself. But, you know, if it's a case that he hasn't put that in and it's already been dealt with on the field, then, you know... um, I can't see there being any uh, sanctions you know long
1: term The point you make about um, about the slow motion uh, about the fact that it looks worse than slow motion I mean it, uh, clearly it does and that's what Jim Gavin Jim, uh, Dave McIntyre interviewed him on News Talk afterwards and he Gavin took umbrage really with the fact that Dave McIntyre was asking him these questions. He says, I think that's a very strong allegation you're making there to me, uh, particularly since I haven't seen the tape. To be suggesting there was something malicious, I don't think that's very fair. Uh, no, actually, I don't think Dave had used the word malicious. But anyway, he ha- he had asked him about the incidents. Uh, D- uh, Dave McIntyre then asked a follow-up, and Gavin says, look, there's lots of incidents in a game. If you slow them down to so the tenth of a second playback, things won't look as pretty as they would in real time. Which is along the lines of what you're saying there, Oisin. But, I mean, that's partly the point of slow-motion replays, that it actually it does... Uh, pick up things that you that that ca- can actually be very serious that you wouldn't have noticed. Um, they wouldn't have noticed in real time. And surely, if 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 you if you find something afterwards, whether it's dealt with by the referee or not, if you find something serious enough, and it looks to me like uh, you know it doesn't look like a good incident at all, there should be you should be able to lean on that technology.
4: Oh, absolutely. I think that's I think that's the case, and that's probably an anomaly that. Um that you know needs to be changed within the GA. That you know, if an incident is dealt with, if it's more serious than that, that we're able to go back and we're able to um, put a put a harsher uh, sentence on, on the thing. Because the the thing that the GA have got away from is you know the the one month ban, the two month ban, the two week ban, the three month ban, um, and they have sort of you know they've got to, right down to the to games, and I think that punishes a you know obviously a player you know a lot. Uh, harsher than if we were given somebody a month ban in the, in the month of January or February, you know, so uh, I think we do need to be able to go back and revisit these incidents. Um, if you can imagine 12 people in a room, six of them have my, you know, uh, look at it, in, you know, as for, uh, the way I have looked at it, and, and six other people have looked at it in a different way, and it's a really difficult one, you know, even with the um, with the benefit of slow motion, it's still a difficult one to call, you know. But uh, that's just the way I call it. I call that at the time. Um, even when I've seen the, um, the slow down footage, like I still thought, you know.
1: Um I don't know. At the, at the very least, when you're looking at the slowdown footage, when I'm looking at the slowdown footage, I'm thinking, like, he's got his... What's he doing with his thumb there? I mean, whatever way you phrase it, whatever you, you, whatever you call it, and there, in rugby, it might be something along the lines of making contact with the with the eye or the eye area or something along those lines, and that's not a good scene.
4: No, it's, it's, there's no doubt that, it, that it's not a good scene, and, and uh, <sighs> I don't I don't know exactly what to say on, to you, but you know, as I say, that's the way I call it at the time, and and, uh, and you know, when you look at it and you look at it over and over again, you know, you, you do have a good argument, like to, to say that. You know, this is a, this is a serious incident and needs to be dealt with, and um, you know, I suppose the one thing is that you know it has been dealt with on the field, and it's up to the referee now to to um, deal to deal with the further. But uh, there has been a, a unfortunately within the GA there is a there is a um, there is a period of time which the referee hasn't been in that report. I mean. You know, if we could, if we knew today, you know, what the referee had said, we'd have, a, you know, we'd be able to make a better judgment call. But I can guarantee there's nothing in that report that's going to uh, be anywhere damning, damning for uh, for J.S. McCarthy. Yet, if the referee has had another look at it in, the, in in the next day or two, which I'm sure he has, I mean, he's a, he's at liberty to change that report, and that's why I think, you know, in an incident like that. If we have somebody along the sideline that we're able to say, you know, straight away, I mean, how long would that have taken? I mean, the referee was taking time out to like that whole incident probably probably took a couple of minutes. By the time he had separated the players, by the time he uh, booked Murphy, and by the time he booked uh, James McCarthy, I mean, we could have had all that dealt with there and then.
1: Yeah, Roy Gallagher didn't make a big deal about it afterwards. Uh, he deadbatted any of the questions about that. What he did talk about, which I thought was interesting, was Michael Murphy's red card and saying, look, Michael, um, there's no point hiding behind it. Michael gets refereed, in our opinion, slightly different. And this is a complaint that we've heard from, um, uh, well, um, not necessarily from Mayo management, but we've heard this said about Aidan O'Shea in the past as well, that these uh, big men forwards uh, tend to just because of their sheer size and ability, uh, and ability to hold off players and to withstand hits, that they seem to maybe suffer for their own strength and, and get punished accordingly?
4: do. I just think, you know, a lot of the time from from, from Michael Muffy is that he gets himself on yellow cards early in the games. And if you watch any of the incidents, any of the times that Michael Muffy has actually been sent to the lane, um, he gets himself in trouble very, very early on. And then... Michael Murphy only seems to know one way to play. He doesn't. He's, he's unable, you know, to hold back in any way, and, and that's why he's picking up those those second yellow cards. He, you know, when you consider that he he does have a, he does tackle very fairly ferociously. I think um, I was I was at the Monaghan uh, Mayo game and he O'Shea no sent off. I think, after four or five minutes, and there was absolutely no way it was a yellow card. He was just too strong. Yeah. He was just too strong for the man. He was actually tackling. Uh, the man hit the ground immediately, and the referee pulled a black card. Like, and, like, this was four minutes into the game, and 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 like, I just—I'd even just thought at the time about, you know, if that was a, a small nippy corner forward, you know, he get—he probably be, mightn't even give away a free, let alone you know a black card. So, I think there's no doubt that. That those physical, those very big physical players do get refereed slightly different. Um, you know, I, I was doing the uh, the Kerry Monaghan game yesterday, and you know, you look at the likes of uh, Donaghy, and you wonder, you know, how does he tackle, uh you know, a Dermot Malone? You know, how does he tackle a Dermot Malone to make it look like he's actually tackling him fairly? The uh, Kerry of a guy called Brandon O'Sullivan who come on, who's one of the most physical, biggest players I've seen come into the game in quite a while, and he had a couple of tackles very, very early on. I think he probably was booked after 30, thirty, forty seconds of the game. Um, so I think it's true that you know the, the big men are refereed slightly differently. But I think it is time for Michael Murphy to temper some of that. I don't know if that affects him as a as a player, but. Uh, the argument the argument would be Michael Murphy's not the same player if he if he doesn't have that physicality and that, but if the referee's going to referee in that way, don't he go need Michael Murphy on the pitch and therefore he's going to need to temper it in somewhere.
1: So you mean temper it in the sense of just pu- pulling out of the full-blooded tackles uh, a little bit? He's
4: going need to hold back a little bit. Yeah. Um, the, the, the follow-through especially, I mean, the first uh, yellow card he got probably was harsh, but, you know, Referees are, certain referees are going to give those. And it seemed to be, because of the history between um, Dublin and uh, and Donegal, that the referee almost booked every tackle for the first uh, five or six minutes, maybe even ten minutes of that game. Uh, If you switch over and you watch Tyrone Namah, it was something similar. You know, referees were putting a a stamp down. And you're in a situation where a referee, you know, is Going to do that early on in the game. You just you got to be aware of that, and you got to you know say, temper things.
1: Uh, just the last I don't one. Know if
4: that's in Michael Murphy's, if that's in you know if that's in Michael Murphy's head and in the games, or if if, uh, if Michael Murphy can do that, if he can can hold back slightly. But unfortunately.
1: Sounds harsh, but that's what he's going to have to do. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a it's maybe not a fair comparison, but uh, I'm thinking about Eric Cantona when he came back from his ban, and there was this, there was always this this idea that oh, Eric Cantona can't play without the fire that he shows by kicking the crap out of supporters and so forth I'm not for a minute suggesting uh, that Michael Murphy's in in that mode but Eric Cantona did actually take the fire out of his game he did stop getting sent off for that last season and he still scored a load of goals so maybe it is possible just the last one Oisin on the uh, Donegal approach to the game the Dublin supporters at Croke Park weren't overly happy with it Uh, they're going to have to get used to it I guess because it's how most teams are going to play against them this season
4: yeah, it is, and, and I always, I always, I always love reading the Dublin quotes afterwards because you tend to not learn a lot, but there's always a message in there. And uh, you know, I read Jim Gavin where he said, you know, we love playing against blanket defenses. I'm pretty sure that they don't love playing against blanket defenses, but uh, they're going to try and get that out there, you know, for people. And, uh, Without a doubt, they've coped better with it. But as far as, you know, supporters and the Boone and all that, I mean, what did they expected this day is because as a, Donegal don't know any other way to play. Um, I watched Monaghan yesterday. They don't know any other way to play. Um, you know, there's teams who, who have mastered that. But you know what, Owen, oh, uh, the, the more the years go on, and the more the seasons go on, you know, other teams have adapted a better system. Kerry had adopted a very good system after it, and that people were coming out, you know, and they were saying to me, "Wow, you know, you know how good were Kerry in the second half." But all and honestly, they were as defensive as Monaghan for large periods of the game after it. But you know, they were able, The transition was just a hell of a lot better than what than what Monaghan's was. They seemed to have better quality players, and they had one option, and that was you know, if in doubt they were able to put the ball into Donaghy or or Alan Fitzgerald or Brendan O'Sullivan or those guys who were able to win the ball in the full forward line, pop, pop it to a run or kick a point, come back out, win their, win that kick out and, and go again. And Dublin have mastered that as well. And you have to give them huge credit for the fact that, you know, it's taken them 18 months or, or a couple of years, you know, in order to be able to play against those systems. But Dublin's as dogged as anybody else now, and they'll wait you out. And you know they have the quality up front, and and essentially that's the difference. But if Donegal thinks that that's going to win them in all Ireland, you know the chances are it's not. But uh, they just need to play a few more players up front. I mean, you know if they can get a big man in there, they can win the ball. I mean if you watch if you watch Mayo, like one of the arguments uh, Owen that that the, that Mayo people or people in general will have against Evan Regan is he can't win his own ball. Mm. I mean, Mayo don't have a problem with ball winners. You know, if they can get somebody in there to win the ball for him and he's as accurate as, as he's looked over the last couple of games, um, you know, he's absolutely worth carrying.
1: Well, Shane, have a good Easter Monday. Thank you.
4: Thanks, lot. Modern day coaching. What is it all about? Paralysis by analysis. Infiltrated by a load of
5: spoofers and bluffers. Fellas with earpieces stuck in their ears. Psychologists, Clyde Woodruff, statisticians, dietitians. And as Mick Connell alluded to, God save us.
1: Alright, Ken, some good news for you before you before you head off. Oh yeah. I know you're on the way to Belfast you're dying to get a get a bus up there to oh, see Northern yeah. Ireland this evening. You know the the part of Irish sport that vexes you the question that vexes you the most, as in the most often and just with the most intensity. Is which? What is it about Brian Cody? Oh yeah. What is it about Cody yeah. that sets those guys out to win and win and win? Well, I've got an answer for you, courtesy of Tommy Walsh. Right. The legendary Tommy Welsh, he, he is talking to sportsjoe.ie. He's actually not, sorry. It's just to clarify, sportsjoe.ie are quoting a piece from the Daily Mail, they say here. Yeah. Uh, anyway, he reveals the seven simple words that Cody used to build up his confidence ahead of games.
2: Go out there and do your best. Go out and take over the field. <laughs> go out and take over, take
1: over the field. That's all he ever used to say to me. When he says that to you, you'd be saying to yourself, let's go be man of the match then. It didn't always work out, but that's how you'd feel.
2: Take over the fields. What What is? What explains the power of that formula? What is it about that that taps into the Irish psyche? Kilkenny psyche? Is it something, is it kind of a Bill McCabe type of thing? Sounds like
1: it, doesn't it? Take over the field. The field, field is yours. Yeah. These other 29 eyes don't belong in this field, Tommy, with you. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. the that subtext, but all he needs, he doesn't need that. You just need seven words. It's the magic. So are you happy now that you've found out the key to Brian Cody?
2: One of the keys. <laughs> One of the many keys. Yeah, no, it's, it's always good to find out more about Brian Cody.
1: All right, I'm going to go out and soak up the, what are they calling again? Reflecting the Rising. Uh, you're going to go, you're going to take a slightly different tack here and go and uh, connect with our Northern Irish brethren. Yeah. Uh, up in Windsor Park, so enjoy that. And I don't know what Simon's doing, but you're probably getting bored of me talking about what our plans are for the rest of the day. So enjoy whatever it is you're doing and whatever it is you're listening to this. Do have a listen to the football podcast, which is out now. In the meantime, thanks again.
2: Thank you very much, Tivo.
1: And thanks for taking the time to tune into this one. Take it. Who's on? Is that? That's the second time he's done it. Never go
6: home. They never
2: go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen